Welcome to the latest episode of Focus Talks on Investec Focus Radio, a series of candid conversations with leaders, innovators, and change makers. A 1% increase in infrastructure stock results in a 1% increase in GDP growth, right? That's not a small thing. And, you know, for genuine growth and development, there's no way forward without infrastructure, without investments in human capital, and without continuous innovation. That was an upbeat Fomani and Tembi. Fomani is young, black, bright, ambitious, and now has over a decade of experience in the renewable energy space. 12 years ago, she co-founded Pele Energy Group, South Africa's largest 100% black-owned independent power-producing firm. Just before, President Cyril Ramaphosa announced the good news that the license threshold for private power production would be increased to 100 megawatts. Fomani and I sat down and chatted about the extraordinary success of the independent power producing program called REAP or REI Triple P. If you're in need of some inspiration and some hope for South Africa's future, don't go away. I am Ziad Sarang, Power and Infrastructure Specialist at Investec. Fomani, as a leader and entrepreneur, you're passionate about green energy, innovation, and social change. Tell us about your journey within this infrastructure sector. The journey for me has been defined by a number of things. I think the first thing is to acknowledge that it's been a journey that's been supported and guided by many different people along the way, um, starting, of course, with my family and I think giving me the space, particularly as a girl child, to earn my identity as someone who wants to create things in the world. And so I came into sort of my adult identity, believing that I was complete and valid. And for me, that's the first step um, for anyone to really recognize in themselves the fact that they are unique and have something to offer to the world. Coming out of university, my first job was within a team at Standard Bank that was tasked with creating a new business within the business. So I've only ever known entrepreneurial work environment. And then soon afterwards, I went off to do my master's degree. And I think coming back, I then had clarity around what mattered to me from a a social contribution perspective and what I understood to be my lane, you know, in in life. So by the time that we started Billy in 2009, I was quite set in my belief in the importance, particularly for the South African economy, that we have young people create new economic value. The structure of our economy historically has been highly concentrated um, amongst enterprises that have done well and added to society, created jobs, etc. But it's not sufficient for the kind of development that we need. And, and that's something that I've taken on quite passionately. I recognize that it's not something I can do on my own. It's not something that Billy as an entity can do on its own. But we need more people to put their hands up and to give it their best shot, um, because that's the only way we open up the economy. It's been, I think, a, a journey that's been led by passion. We started an energy company without any of us having any expertise, technical expertise in energy, because we understood the end game. You know, so you know, can we buy the technical skills? Yes, but you can't buy passion. You can't buy um, vision, and those are the things that we brought to the table. Yeah, you know, it's a journey. Eventful, I think. <laughs> no, that, <that's, laughs> in a single word. That, yeah. that is amazing. I mean, I, I, I can see now we we what you talk about when you say the the innovation, the passion, it, it comes through. Why what? Why did you choose energy to take this passion, this innovation forward? Yeah. 
To be very honest, um, our coming into business wasn't driven by a passion for energy. It was really a passion for development and transformation. And energy for us was the conduit. You know, it, it was the right thing at the right time. It aligned with our values to the extent that for us, sustainable development is core. The other aspect of it is that we wanted to be, I think, on the right side of history. And we could see then the, the growing conversation on climate change. Um, I'd completed my master's in, in science and development, and one of the focus areas was climate change. And so we wanted to respond um, to those issues in as creative a manner as possible so that we would have a unique value proposition in society. And so the emergence of REAP at the same time almost as the start of our business then gave us the perfect plug. That's how we, I want to say, found ourselves in the energy space and were awarded a project in the very first round of REAP. And so that then, you know, gave a very concrete identity to our business. If, if I could come in there, I, I, you know, it, it's an incredible story that from that very first project in 2011 um, to being the largest black-owned IPP and development company. Let's, let's take it you know, a step further. I mean, the, it seems and it looks like it that the Renewable Energy uh, Independent Power Program, REAP, and, and Pele's success is sort of inter, intertwined. Uh, and maybe, maybe if we can delve into, into REAP itself, I think it's a, it's a program that South African government has embarked upon that is, it is massively successful, but very understated. In, in that success. You have a program that is government supported, um, but provides opportunity for inclusion. How do you see the, the renewable energy program and, and, and maybe tell us about some of the successes and even the challenges, we can go into that. Yeah. It is impossible to tell the Billy story without telling the story of REAP. And when we talk about REAP, we're talking about a, you know, a, a state-driven program. And you know, I want to reiterate that this is something created by the South African government um, post-94 with the intention to deliver power and development. That is what the state set out to do. Yes, power is, is central and on its own has many development um, benefits for society. You know, there's access for households and, and business and therefore it fuels the entire socio-economy. Um, but you don't fully develop a society by taking a consumption perspective on what needs to be done. And so the state understood that, you know, we need to create the possibilities for our own people to have the ability to um, play a, a, pr a producer role mm. in this, right? And we recognized at the time in 2011 that, well, you know, there were no entities like that in South Africa. We, we have a state utility that's very well experienced in, in, in the energy sector, but predominantly um, has capabilities in, in, in coal, right? Coal, coal gener um, sort of coal generated electricity. And so there was a recognition that if we want to transition to renewable energy power, um, sure, we need to be consuming it um, for, for many reasons. Mm -hmm but also we need to create a base of South Africans that have the ability to act as producers. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to take a step back and look at REAP because from REAP come many lessons that have relevance for the broader infrastructure sector and then broadly what it means to create macroeconomic development and growth in our society. Which is what we need. It's, it's exactly, it's what we need. And I think, 
you know, what makes me sad is that it, it almost seems as though we, we suffer from amnesia in our countries. So reap is here in broad day, daylight. You know, so no speak. one's hiding. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, exactly. So no one's hiding. The government's not hiding the facts of reap. Um, the reports produced by the energy department on a quarterly basis that tell you what this program is about and what it's achieved. And yet our society has no idea. But they're real successes in cold hard numbers yes. within REAP. Yes. You know, over 6,000 megawatts procured in four rounds, mm-hmm. uh, 55,000 jobs created along the way. Yep. Um, I mean, that, that, that is incredible. Uh, and on top of that, we've got over 5,000 megawatts on the grid yeah. because of REAP. Yeah. So, you know, th- that's real. You've got businesses thriving. What were some of the challenges in, in the REAP program if you had to, say, do it again? What would you do? So maybe let me start by saying, for me, the goal is not necessarily to do it again, but it is to continuously improve it. You know, so if so, if I had, and of course I'm conflicted, so I, you know, I ought not be uh, an advisor to the state, but um, if I could advise those who who do write the rules of the program and and have that kind of control, I'd say, you know, let's look at all these successes. We've done really well. Um, and the first thing I think in, in recognizing all that overperformance, right? So, and when we talk about overperformance in the context of REAP, we're talking about the, the fact that the state set initial targets. You know, so yes, they wanted to produce, you know, um, or, or rather procure um, x x amount of megawatts, mm-hmm. and and that is happening. Um, but over and above that, the state wanted to achieve things with respect to job creation, the development of host communities, um, the development of SMEs. Um, and, and the development of a, a senior technical cohort of professionals that could participate in the sector. Now, what isn't known is the fact that IPPs have gone beyond their own committed targets in delivering on jobs, yeah. on top management, etc. And the lesson there, which is a lesson around public-private partnerships, is a lesson around, I think, the quality of REAP contracts and it's something that, um, you know, I think other, uh, and, and, you know, sort of procurement programs from a state perspective can learn from, that there, there is such a, um, a well-designed um, incentive system that r- sort of pushes IPPs to do better um, on these developmental goals, which aren't even, you know, core to producing electricity. That's great. And it, it, it seems to be working. Yeah. So... Why not roll this out to other parts of uh, infrastructure development? I, I believe yeah. there's some talk about doing a, a REAP-style program for water. Yes. Um, is that a good idea? It, I, I think, uh, look, without knowing the fundamentals of water, um, I think to, to the extent that we're describing a, a general structure, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I'd add about REAP um, that, that make it something that goes beyond electricity um, which is all, you know, sort of this, uh, uh, what's referred to as economic development, but, you know, the jobs and the community development and, and all of that. Um, the, the design of REAP is such that that is weighted highly. Um, historically, you know, um, sort of the price of, of power was given a 70% weighting, and the price of, uh, not the price, rather, the, the combined um, uh sort of performance of an IPP in, in respect of its economic development um, obligations was given a 30% weighting. And that has been a sufficient um, sort of driver 
of this overperformance from a development perspective. So I'd say that's the first thing to really keep in mind in, in um, rolling out other programs. Have a 70-30 rating because it'll incentivize all parties around the table to partner genuinely with black entities, um, to create genuine participation for black professionals at the senior level, um, you know, to, to work as top managers, um, and then cascading all the way down to the communities that host those projects. First thing I'd say is, sure, you know, you have your, your requirements in terms of black participation, but support the entity, because right. what you want is to create and an get entity. Get involved in the, in the operations, get involved in exactly. the EPC, the, 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 the construction. And this is all about skills transfer and knowledge transfer. Exactly. So, so it's broader than just the investment in the project. Exactly. So, so what we can do better going forward, and, and, and we see it, and I think there's hope for, for us in the sense that this model is being replicated in water and it'll go to transportation, it'll go to healthcare, it'll go to schools. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not just about the financial investment, it's about the total investment in developing the businesses that support the construction the planning, the development, and then the operations. So exactly. it's a whole life cycle. Exactly, exactly. And I think to add to that, um, when you take a whole life cycle perspective, you'll start to ask different questions of the black people who participate, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, as much as I disparage people who, who look at Billy, you know, I recall a few years ago talking to someone um, who had worked, I think, or come across one of our transactions um, at a, an, an insurance company. And he was like, oh, you're from Billy, you're BE, you know. And I, I was so offended because I was like, oh, that is such a, I mean, why would you reduce me to that? But that's because the, that's precisely how we're understood. You know, we're black checks, you know, or rather the black face on a check. And, you know, if you really think about what you're doing from a, a, a macroeconomic development perspective, once you start writing the rules of the program, I think what you'll ask for isn't just black ownership, but black participation, right? That's important. You know, you start to have like an actual category that says, tell me how the black owners are also participating in this project. You know, how are they participants? That's that's great. Um, Fawani, I want to take the conversation slightly different angle. I think, you know, over the last 13 years, um, the, the, the discussions between private sector and government has all but broken down. Um, and I think people re- refer to this th- as the trust deficit yeah. um, has increased year on year. Yeah. Uh, but I've noticed, and I'd like your opinion on this year, over the last two years, um, the, the, there's more dialogue between mm. private sector and government. Mm. Um, and, and to have that dialogue, um, we obviously want to see the change on the ground, mm. on service delivery, on new programs, on investment. Mm. What's, what's your opinion with regards to this trust deficit and the change that will come out from it, if, if any? Yeah. I mean, trust, I think, is such an important theme. And it's, it's that very sort of tacit thing that, that is, you know, there, there's no way of defining it per se when it does exist. Um, but you know it exists because people are motivated in their respective spaces to do what is for the greater good. And I think how I know and experience the trust deficit is when you know people refuse to move, you know, so people sit on money and they don't really want to spend 
because it, that intrinsic motivation to do what is for the greater good isn't there, right? Um, and it's on all, all sides, you know, whether it's the state or the, or the private sector and even civil society. In fact, I, I was part of a forum recently where, um, you know, in looking at data around trust, it, it came out that civil society is the most um, mistrustful of, of government. You know, so that that's that's the, the situation. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it, it, like NGOs, etc., are sitting there going, "Actually, this is an actor I do not trust." I, I I really do hope that we're moving towards a future where you know we rebuild that trust in society. Um, but I think it's going to take time, and you know, the nature of trust is that it requires everyone to um, take actions that um, signal to the other that I, I'm here and I'm committed. And that's not just the responsibility of government, it's the responsibility of all actors. Um, we all need to demonstrate what we're doing in our respective stations to make the society yes, one that works for everyone. And, and, and I think we're on the right path again. I, I, do, I do see you know, that dialogue interacting with, with the presidency setting up setting up various programs where private sectors are not just invited to comment but also provide input. Yeah. Um, REAP is a, is a great example of public, uh, public private partnership, you yeah. know, in its true sense of, of PPP, as, yeah. as people put it. What you don't get is instant, instant <laughs> gratification yeah. um, of today the discussion happens, tomorrow you have a new, <laughs> a new highway or yes. a new power plant. Yeah. The, this is the long game. Exactly. Um, and, and when you talk of infrastructure, when you talk of, of development, uh, it, it can't happen in days. It happens in, over a longer period of time. Yeah. Um, just like uh, we've got over 100 projects in REAP, uh, it, it took 10 years to get here. How do you see young industrialists like yourself 10, 10 15 years ago would, 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 would view a path in or career path within infrastructure, creating new young industrialists. Jeez. The starting point for me is to convey, as it pertains to infrastructure, the value of infrastructure. Um, and I always revert to the one statistic that always sort of focuses my attention, which is that a 1% increase in infrastructure stock results in a 1% increase in GDP growth. Right? That's not a small thing. And I think it's important for everyone who's in the sector and, and society in general to take a perspective on infrastructure that, again, is not about deals and transactions and the single highway, but around the total impact of having an infrastructure sector that is booming and thriving because it delivers all these other benefits. And, you know, for genuine growth and development, there's no way forward without infrastructure, without investments in human capital, and without continuous innovation. And so if I was a young person, I'd say, I'm about to become a part of something big. You know, it's never going to be the story of a single entity or a single person, but it's about all of us pulling together to really transform our society for the better. Now, as South Africans, we know all the ways in which our country isn't where we'd like it to be. You know, we have um, a, a very high number of people who have, uh, you know, access to electricity, as an example, but we're also living through a very difficult um, period in terms of the consistency of supply. So we experience load shedding. 
which means there's something to be done, something quite fundamental in the infrastructure space, looking at power on its own. And then you, you know, uh, we at the moment are exposed to harrowing stories about communities that don't have reticulated water in 2021. Now, these problems are, you know, they're infrastructure problems in, in sort of in the first instance, but they're also massive opportunities for the holistic development of our economy. Because when you think about any single um, project, whether it's a dam or a highway, um, you know, or a power plant, all the things that go into that, in a sense from a value chain perspective, also constitute entire, you know, worlds. You know, they, those are more jobs, those are more industries. Um, those are more capabilities from manufacturing to, you know, even the, the, the sort of core work that I do, the research, the community development, all those things emanate out of these projects. And therefore, it's possible to develop so many pieces of our economy to create so much more opportunity um, in our economy so that it can be one that, you know, has room for all these young people that are, you know, coming into uh, their own and, and trying to find their feet in the economy. We, we don't live in the most um, friendly environment from an entrepreneurial perspective. Um, you know, it's not like there's venture capital, you know, all over the show willing to back any and all ideas. Um, that's a constraint. That's the nature of things right now. Um, in future, I think things will change. And I think young entrepreneurs like myself, um, given time um, and, you know, a, a bit more capital, personal capital, will absolutely participate in venture capital. Yes. So there is a bright future ahead. Um, it's all about betting on yourself today. And, and maybe if we take that point further, um, REAP was a government program, but I think now that the skills, the skill set has been put in place within, within South Africa itself, and we're seeing a lot more private investment. Uh, for example, the the corporate and industrial space, yeah. the rooftop solar, as they call it. Yeah. Um, we see large mining companies in South Africa, you know, almost now on, on a weekly basis announcing another large project. Yeah. That's not government-led. Exactly. And there's a lot of interest in these type of projects, which exactly. means the private sector now is seeing the benefit of these large projects, which I, I think if, if government was not so committed to it in the start, would not have would not have got us to this point. Precisely, precisely. I mean, you know, again, coming back to just the importance of REAP, um, and I mean, I say it because I think there should be national pride in REAP, you know. Um, we've done something that is considered globally to be amongst the best in the world. You know, um, governments come to South Africa to learn how to execute a program of this nature as successfully. Um, and, I, you know, the, the lesson, I think, from a, a private sector, or let me say, you know, from a statecraft perspective, the lesson is, indeed, if you want to create a sector and you want to make it possible for the private sector to take risks in new technologies as the state, go for it. Um, and what we saw initially was a lot of criticism around how expensive it was to procure this power because it was, you know, sort of, high tech, new tech, um, you know, what's a wind farm, what's a solar farm, etc. Um, and then we saw prices plummet yeah. because there was consistent demand from the state um, and other global dynamics were at play from a supply chain perspective. And eventually, you know, the, the price of solar is, is actually nothing to really, yeah. you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not much of a conversation. You know, the price of wind is not much of a conversation. And, and so we can reap the environmental benefits 
um, as well as the financial and you know socioeconomic benefits of the technology. As a result, as you, you've um, rightly pointed out, the private sector is now going, oh, this is doable. And the prices, as a function of a government-led program, um, of the core technologies, um, or you know, sort of the core technological artifacts, things like solar panels, um, you know, those prices have come down. Um, so I, I don't need the government to, to force me. I can build my own 60 megawatt power plant to power my mine or whatever. I'm not going to wait for ESCOM. No, I'm not waiting for anyone, right? And, and that's the kind of vibrancy that then emerges in an open economy like, such as ours yeah. when you create the context. So, you know, is our government capable of reviving the economy through infrastructure? My answer is absolutely yes. We have an amazing 10-year track record of doing it within REAP. And these are the green shoots, I think, of the kind of future that we can hope for. The reality is that um, what these renewable energy projects enable is um, the ability, firstly, to put power on the grid, um, but also to in a sense, by bolstering capacity to repair and, you know, deal with all the infrastructure in our power system um, and kind of switch those off and, and, and do what's needed because we actually have a cohort of, of, of projects that are delivering power. We would have liked for it to not break, but it has broken and, and that's an opportunity for us to, to redo, rethink and do better going forward to build not just South Africa's economy, but the African economy. And this is why it's so important to, to create an industrial class within South Africa across the value chain. Um, because going into the rest of the continent, you know, our advantage is never going to be solar panels. You know, um, other geographies have mastered the manufacturing of solar panels, but we can do so much more because the value chain is so diverse. There is an opportunity here for us to work together at an accelerated pace because we've got the lessons um, and, and really transform the lives of ordinary Africans, um, hopefully, you know, within the ambit of Agenda 2063. Okay, thank you, Fumani, for providing us the opportunity to get some of your insights, some of the experiences, some of the positiveness that we all look forward to, and some of the advice to young entrepreneurs, young industrialists that are there to come. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ziad. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's talk, there's plenty more where that came from. Conversations with the likes of Professor Glenda Gray, Ellen DeBotton, and Sir Richard Branson. Just scroll through Investec Focus Radio. Next month, we're particularly excited to have Investec CEO Fani Titi in conversation with CEO of NASPA South Africa, Puti Mariniela Debongwa. You don't want to miss that. And remember to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.